As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everybody and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and I'm assuming at least a few of you are listening to this with pitchforks in hand, because tonight we're talking about the U.S. men's national team's 1-0 loss to Panama on the road in World Cup qualifying. Here with me to talk about a game that was so, so bad that we watched it <laughs> twice. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Thank you for being here. Thank you for watching that game twice. Oh, you got it, Taylor. I, I think you can tell how bad a game is by the number of people that message us on Twitter <laughs> offering their condolences exactly. that we have to watch this again or that we choose to watch this again. Mm-hmm. And I got several of those, and I assume you did as well. Taylor, oh, yeah. this was this was not a good game. The thing that I, I do appreciate, though, and you can start to gauge, is when people say, like, you don't need to watch that again. Don't watch that again. I, you shouldn't watch that again. When people are like, I'm sorry that you have to watch it again. To me, that says everybody did not enjoy that game, but everybody wants answers and is as confused as we definitely were. Uh, because after the Jamaica game, I think we were feeling somewhat more positive, but I, I think there are some caveats in there that are worth exploring later on. But I want to go back to the Jamaica game because with that game, Joe, I asked you sort of how different things were from first viewing to second viewing, I'm going to ask you the same again tonight. I will say, and, I, and not to start us off on too negative of a foot, but this is one of the few times I can remember that it was pretty much completely worse the second time I watched it. I, I turned to you to ask, how are you feeling, Joe? Well, maybe this is a slight positive. I felt about the same okay. when I watched it the first time and the second time, which is yeah. to say it was really bad both times. So it's not like a, a major positive there. But my outlook on the game stayed fairly similar. I learned more things the second yeah. time through, as we always do. Yeah. And so maybe just taking more extensive notes that time through and figuring out a short list of, man, this went wrong and this went wrong and this went wrong because this went wrong. Going through that process isn't especially fun. And so maybe that's why you left feeling a, a bit worse about things, Taylor. And I guess I kind of did too. But it, it largely stayed the same for me. Well, I think that's a good reminder that, like, in watching it again, even if it looks worse, at least we can come up with some ideas and some answers for what clearly did not where clearly was not going right, and then hope that we avoid those or properly deal with them next time. I'm also really excited to listen to lots of other different podcasts about this game because I think you could watch this game 
two or three or four times and come away with different conclusions a lot of the time. Some of them will be the same, and I think you and I are going to have some similarities. Maybe we'll have some differences. Joe, let's get into this one, though. Let's try to figure out what maybe specifically went wrong. We'll see if we can come up with a list of sorts, what we learned, where we go from here, uh, hopefully somewhere positive. But let's start with the lineups and the overall approach for the U.S. I think this was... A, for me at least, the first kind of miscalculation across the board for Greg Berhalter. And I would say that with that in mind, when I first saw the lineup, I wasn't too surprised. It seemed like a lot of what we expected of player rotation of the players that we knew wouldn't be there because they weren't permitted to travel. So no Weston McKinney, no Anthony Robinson, no Zach Steffen. Uh, but... I think in retrospect, this is where I'm trying to own the fact that this is definitely a hindsight opinion for me. Thinking about seven changes from that Jamaica game and the point that you, Joe, made in that Jamaica game, that it wasn't a very compact Jamaica. It wasn't a high-pressing Jamaica. It was this sort of mixed-approach Jamaica that left tons of space and tons of openings. And I think you're... Not like to start again negative, but I think your takeaway was a little bit that we don't quite know that much more because Jamaica didn't play a way that kind of lets us figure them out and find a way through. Um, And so I think coming into this one with those changes, you don't have the kind of cohesiveness you would if you had more maybe starters that had played together in more games and more meaningful games at that. I do feel like a little bit that sense of complacency we saw in the first three games of World Cup qualifying returned. Uh, What did you think of the lineup when you first saw it? And have you had similar hindsight as 2020 changes of heart? I think everyone has to an extent, right? And that includes Greg Berhalter. When I saw this lineup, I thought, this is fine. We expected rotation, Mm -hmm. maybe not quite this much. But I mean, I'm of the belief that in a lot of spots, not every spot, but in a lot of spots in in the US 11, there's not a ton of difference between two and three or at times between one and two on the depth chart. So I wasn't especially bothered that we're seeing a lineup with seven changes from game one of this window to game two because – Game three is coming up right around the corner, right? That's the challenge of this particular World Cup qualifying cycle. And Greg Berhalter, I think, rotates maybe more than other coaches do, certainly than than Panama has done and in a lot of other teams in CONCACAF as well. But he talked about this after the game. This was with an eye to Wednesday. And if on Wednesday they don't have a good result, then you look back and think, man, the rotation for this window really did not work. And it certainly didn't work for this game. But I saw this lineup and I immediately thought to what Greg Berhalter was likely thinking at the time we learned after he was, right? This is maybe not entirely about this game. This this group should have been good enough to get a result and it turns out they weren't. But they should have been able to get a result and it should have allowed Berhalter to use that best 11 or as close to a best 11 as he can get for that Wednesday game against Costa Rica. So the talent should have been there and I I can understand the reasoning behind what he's doing, but it it clearly did not pay off. And and I think that it's... It is, again, I I don't think I'm just trying to explain myself here, but I think it's okay to not be so upset about that lineup. And I know there's a ton of people that would have liked to see Luca De La Torre or see Jean-Luc Abusio. I think we've talked about reasons why maybe they didn't start in the past, but largely I just agree with you, Joe, that I think there aren't huge drop-offs. But I think there aren't huge drop-offs when we're playing the same way. And against Jamaica, it seemed, again, like we had turned a page. We had learned some things that there was less directness or less consistent directness. If the ball was on over the top, they would hit it. But there was also a lot of passes through the middle. There was Sometimes it was slow. Sometimes it was fast. We got different styles of buildup, and it felt like there was better communication, better organization, better defensive solidarity essentially and I don't think we saw any of that in this game so you can have the same lineup uh, and they can play the same way you can have a different lineup and they can play the same way and I think it's roughly okay but you can't have a completely different lineup and essentially a completely different looking team this did not look like the same 
team, not just because there were different names and faces, but because the style and the way they played was just so different from the previous game. So I'm going to run us through the lineup here. We've been referencing Please. it a lot, and I'm going to I'm going to drop these eleven names. Matt Turner was in goal. Shaq Moore was at right back. He was one of the new new players for this particular game. Walker Zimmerman and Mark McKenzie were the two center backs. George Bello started on the left side of defense. Kellen Acosta was the six. Yunus Musa and Sebastian Lejet were the two eights in front of Acosta. And then across the front line, you had Paul Ariola on the right, Jossie Zardes as the nine, and Tim Weah on the left. And so a lot of those names, man, I saw the lineup, and I'm excited to see Tim Weah. I'm excited to see Yunus Musa. I'm interested to see more of Walker Zimmerman because he was really good against Jamaica. I mean, there's there's plenty of names here that I'm okay with, and I understand the reasoning that Baralter would use to arrive at this lineup and it backfired in a major way, right? Luca De La Torre is a guy who I think would have helped in this game. Uh, he would have helped progress the ball through midfield. But, I mean, you can go through those individual players. Chris Richards, I would have much rather have seen, and this was true before the game started, than Mark McKenzie. But, I mean, it's a, lot a of, it's a lot of things that we can, we can put blame on Berhalter for this lineup, and he's even doing it himself, right? We can do that, and we can also put blame on him for some of the substitutes and who came off and who didn't come off. Maybe that's the better way to phrase that. Those things are all fair to put on Greg Berhalter. I don't know how much I am prepared to blame him for Kellen Acosta not being able to bring the ball down in midfield. I don't know how much I'm yeah. prepared to blame him for Matt Turner looking completely uncomfortable with the ball at his feet. I mean, these are, to an extent, known weaknesses, and so there is a portion of blame that should go to Berhalter for putting players in, in spots where maybe they're not the most comfortable within a style of play where they're not the most comfortable. Those things yeah. are fair, but there's also just a lot here that is absolutely on the players. It's It's got to be both as far as we're assigning blame. And it, that's not always an easy, nuanced conclusion to get to or a conversation to have, I guess. Joe, I know you haven't seen uh, so many movies. Have you seen the original <laughs> Space Jam? I need you to have seen the original Space Jam. Uh, I, oh, I Joe Lowry. Oh, Taylor, I'm sorry. Well, for those who have not, including Joe, <laughs> uh, like the, the bad guys steal the good basketball players like NBA ability and then that's why they get really good and if you told me that this was like Space Jam 3 and everybody had had their powers zapped that would be an explanation for why the US looks so flat and looks so unable to complete a pass or control a ball Um, and I do think that there is certainly an individual component I want to talk about that in a minute I first want to talk about maybe why players looked so uncomfortable and one that really stood out to me is Yunus Musa uh, because on first viewing, it, I remember him doing some good things, some good dribbles, some good decision making. I also remember him losing the ball, giving up possession in a number of different ways on a number of different occasions. And watching it again, I, I think he might be one of the few players that I think was better than I thought. And some of that is because he did some interesting things that I think no one else on the pitch was doing. But I think a lot of it is watching the whole team play. I saw how he kept being let down by things around him. And I'm not saying that that means Musa had a good game. This is just my example to say that this is where I think Burhalter kind of miscalculated. I think he expected Panama to bunker and counter. I think he thought they would be defensive I think he thought they would try to frustrate and then try to hit on a set piece or a counter and they would cock a calf their way through to a draw maybe they would try to fight for that win I don't think he expected them or any of the U.S. expected them to be as aggressive as they were and in those opening 15 minutes routinely they were evenly matched when the U.S. would try to build out build out of the back so even if the U.S. had six outfield players in their half Panama stepped with six players and really made it difficult for the United States to have any time on the ball, any 
just comfort on the ball. And usually it, it forced them into making rash decisions. And I think what we then saw was the U.S. start to get disjointed really, really quickly. And the reason why I spotlighted Yunus Musa was because there's a moment when he gets the ball in the first 10 minutes and he opens up to play it wide to the left-hand side. But George Bello, who's supposed to be making that run that we saw Anthony Robinson make, that motoring run, like sprinting forward to make that like that overload on the far side, George Bello is probably 30 yards behind the play. And then he realizes, oh, I'm supposed to make that run. And Musa holds the ball and holds the ball and holds the ball. And then gets the ball taken away before Bello can get into that space. And that is a thing that I routinely saw on this on this rewatch was just the U.S. basically not having time. And then the few times that they would get time, they didn't really have anybody around them. There wasn't much movement. There were people kind of stretched and out of position. And I think at least for that first 45, they didn't really know how to deal with Panama. And I think in some ways were set up to handle Panama the worst way they could have been. I Taylor, I totally agree that the U.S. really struggled to deal with Panama in that first half, and, and that extends to the second half as well, unfortunately, for the United States in this game. I I don't know. I, I guess I'm pushing back slightly on mm-hmm. the, the U.S. thought Panama would bunker narrative because I went back through and looked at Panama's possession percentages, and this is kind of a crude way to get to the point I'm going to make, but... They've averaged at least 54% possession in every uh, World Cup qualifier with the exception of that Mexico game that they've played. So they have been controlling the ball. They dominated the ball against Jamaica. They held the ball a, a good bit against Costa Rica and against El Salvador as well. So, I mean, in, in a number of their games so far, they have been controlling the ball. And I think that's something that CONCACAF teams like to do at home. Right. So we've seen the other teams that the U.S. have played do that already on the road. El Salvador did that at home on the road for the U.S. Honduras did the same thing. So I'm not saying you're wrong necessarily. Yeah. That could have been the line of thinking. But I, I'd be very concerned if it was the line of thinking. Either way, that, that almost is not as relevant to yeah. this discussion. Right. Because no matter what the, the thinking was heading into this game, the execution wasn't there. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, yeah, totally. it, it, in a, on a shocking level, really. I mean, it was. It was hard to watch. I mean, it's Kellen Acosta from the very beginning of this game, almost just flailing his legs at the ball, trying to bring it down. It's George Bellow looking out of control. It's Mark McKenzie taking too long on the ball. Same with Yunus Musa, although, Taylor, I agree, there are other factors at play, obviously, in that situation and in situations with all of these players. I mean, there were just so many problems on an individual level, on a team-wide level. I don't know what the thinking was headed into this game, but whatever that thinking was initially, it feels like it all crumbled and went to dust almost as soon as the kickoff happened. It's really like a cycle, a negative cycle of if not this, then this. Because if <laughs> yeah. it's not Panama, like, <laughs> like if it's not Berhalter expecting Panama to bunker and expecting the U.S. to have a lot of possession and just kind of keeping the ball and moving it, then it is pretty much explained by arrogance to me that it's the United States coming in and kind of expecting to boss Panama, expecting to be able to kind of keep the ball, overwhelm, frustrate uh, Panama at home and and get a get a comfortable result and i think for panama they were they were ready to fight for everything they were ready to win uh that first ball or that second ball they were ready to cock a calf when they had to and be defensive when they needed to but also string some passes together when the situation required and i just think we didn't see that same level of fight from the united states and the way i sort of explained it to myself because I I really do think a huge issue is the lack of Tyler Adams in that first half and and everything he does and the strengths he has but I compare it to like if you try to I I was thinking of the best analogy here and I'll just go with like one time I used salt instead of sugar and I tried to see if there was a way like when baking a cake and I thought maybe if I just keep adding sugar eventually eventually it will balance out it doesn't it just 
stays salty. And so to some extent, I feel like the U.S. would bring in players and this speaks to maybe the negativity around the team in this game, that they would bring on those substitutions at halftime, and then later on they made five. And and instead of it having a positive impact, it felt like those players very quickly were pulled into this sort of negative cycle, this discombobulated style of play. And instead of those five players, you're changing half the outfield lineup. Instead of them having any sort of demonstrable, consistent, positive impact, they kind of kept doing the same thing that they'd done in the first half. And I have some notes from the second half, not as many as I had from the first, but they're they're all pretty familiar. They all look pretty much the same. Yeah, and, and one thing that I am very willing to, to criticize Berhalter for, and I'm sure there's reasons in his head about this, and, and they may be valid, right? But one thing that I just don't fully understand from this game is why Kellen Acosta and Sebastian Legette play the full 90, right? Yeah. There are five subs, and Yunus Musa comes off at the half, and, and Paul Ariola comes off at the half, and there are substitutions made, and, and three more later on midway through that second half. And that's that's great that Berhalter was proactive with those changes, but for as much as Kellen Acosta struggled, and legit, we haven't talked about as much maybe why he struggled, but I thought he hid from the ball. I posted a little video on Twitter where he's just not opening up into a pocket of space. He forced a lot of passes, didn't always make the best decisions on the ball, and wasn't wasn't wholly bad in this game, but generally pretty poor, I, I thought. I don't really get why Legette and Acosta stay on, right? Adams comes on and, and Acosta stays on at half and, and Legette stays on the entire time. It's it's brutal to watch in those moments because I don't think those players brought a whole lot to this game. So that is one thing I'm very willing to to criticize Berhalter for because I just, I don't get it. You had better midfield options on the bench or at least different ones, right? Because it's not as if these players haven't had good games in the past. We've, we've just come off of a summer, Taylor, where Kellen Acosta played phenomenally in a final against Mexico. He was the man of the match, and we were so pleased with that performance because he was excellent, right? He was very, very good, and things change, and players have off games. And I don't know if this is an off game for Kellen Acosta or not, but it, it kind of seems like it is relative to at least some of the other data we have on him. And just leaving Acosta out there to dry, yeah, you changed up his position a little bit, but, I mean, not really changing up the midfield in a larger way I think really hurt this team. I want to stick with that midfield. I want to stick with Acosta. Uh, first, I want to take a break so we can collect ourselves, and then we'll be back to talk more about the USA's 1-0 loss. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. All right, Joe, we are back. We are talking a little bit about Acosta, a little bit about the substitutions. I want to kind of stick with a, first off, a things can be two things consistency, which is that I do think with games like this, there is a temptation to blame it all on the manager. There's a temptation to blame it all on the players. And I think if we're going with things can be two things, I think blame can be apportioned to both parties. Because I oh, do yes. think there's many ways in which Burhalter 
didn't set this team up to win and then wasn't able to have the kind of change we would like to see. But to your point, Joe, there is an individuality to this performance. And Kellen Acosta, a player that we've seen be very good, as you said, not completing passes and failing to control back passes and just making questionable decisions. To me, this was a comprehensive quicksand game for so many people on this team. Uh, another movie reference, I will explain. We talk about that <laughs> that concept a lot, and so much so that it occurs to me it's been a while since we explained where it comes from. So for people who have not seen the wonderful Keanu Reeves, Gene Hackman vehicle, The Replacements, uh, it comes from uh, Keanu Reeves, the the quarterback who always kind of chokes in the big moments explaining what a quicksand game is he says you're playing and you think everything is going fine i would say the u.s wasn't really doing that but then one thing goes wrong and then another and then another you try to fight back but the harder you fight the deeper you sink until you can't move you can't breathe because you're in over your head like quicksand and the way i think that often manifests in soccer is that a player will fail to complete a a simple pass or fail to do something that they normally do without really having to think about it. And as soon as you have to slow down and think about things that are normally so natural, they just kind of happen without you having to really think, you start to slow down and you start to second guess everything. And then when you go to hit that pass again, you think, oh, I really hope I'm able to hit this pass. I hope I'm able to pull it off. And there's a difference between just doing something by instinct and sitting there being like, I hope I do this right. And And there's the idea that like when you say like, oh, I hope I don't fail, you're saying I'm going to fail. And there's an element of that here that as soon as you start to not be able to complete a pass and then the next time I better do it better, uh, like you can just see the nerves increasing and ratcheting up. And, And I think it goes back to the idea that you need the veterans in this team to be able to kind of pull everybody, give them kind of like a slap if that's what it requires, not literally, but like wake everybody up and remind them they got to get it going as opposed to sort of starting to play disjointed soccer because nobody seems to be on the same page and everybody is at the same time sinking a little bit deeper into quicksand as we move on. And so I think the U.S. just starts to have, I think because they're not set up or because they don't have the right mentality, you start to see them stop executing on an individual level, stop being able to do things that we would expect. Kellen Acosta, I sent you that one clip, Joe, has that moment where he gets the ball from Matt Turner. Matt Turner has called him back, has found him time. He, I think he plays it to Zimmerman. Zimmerman plays it back. Then Turner plays it to Acosta. Acosta has nobody within 30 yards of him. And his first touch is sort of back towards Turner, sort of uh, like over to the side towards Mark McKenzie. He then gets a little bit of pressure from Panama. He lays it off to Mark McKenzie, and then he kind of stands there. And McKenzie has no real options and ends up, I think, playing it back to Acosta. But this whole thing takes five or ten seconds longer than it should. I have to believe Tyler Adams there just receives that ball, turns and drives forward with it 10 or 15 yards, and then plays it forward. I think Busio probably does that the same there. I think Weston McKinney certainly does. And I think, for whatever reason, tonight, Kellen Acosta just wasn't thinking that way. He wasn't thinking... I got to turn and find somebody. I got to turn and make something happen. Joe, forgive me. I'm going very long, but I sent you another clip and I can post both of these on Twitter. if People would like uh, of when the U S sort of wins the ball back. They have an opportunity for a, a fast break to kind of counter the counter from Panama. And instead Acosta slows it down. He plays it to the jet, I think, uh, or Zardes. And then it ends up going back to Acosta. It pops up. Acosta gives away the ball. And, and I think Panama get a, a pretty good attacking chance. That might be the one that is called back for offside. Turner would have saved it anyway. But if, if in that moment Acosta opens up, he has Yunus Musa wide open 
again, in like 30 yards of space. And if he plays that ball to Musa, Musa has Tim Weah out on the left. And I think there's one or two Panamanian defenders in that vicinity, and that's it. And I just have to believe that Tyler Adams or maybe even Weston McKinney is just slightly more adventurous, tries to do a little bit more, tries to make something unexpected happen, and maybe something comes from it. And here, it just felt like nobody wanted to take that risk. Nobody wanted to be the one to put the foot wrong. And so instead, everybody kept putting the foot wrong. Yeah, Taylor, I love that you that you sent me that clip because I also had sort of written down some detailed notes of that particular sequence, which was a painful process, I yeah. assure you. Wait, which one? Um, the, the, the first one? The, the 35th the back? minute one. Okay, the 35th cool. minute one where Acosta kind of gets on the ball and just takes forever to turn and it's it's tough to watch. Yeah. The, my Part of my general summary of this game is that it was too slow and too sloppy from the U.S. in possession, right? And And those things really do lead to some major problems. I think we can fall into the trap of thinking, okay, Acosta, and this is, I think, largely what happened to the U.S. Acosta gets on the ball. He takes too many touches. That's fine, right? We can just get it to the next guy, and we'll, we'll be able to pick up the pace. That pace never picked up in this game. And when that doesn't happen or when you're losing the ball in weird spots, that causes some real tactical issues for the U.S. Yeah. And so there's I, I want to go on a little bit of a tactical train here, like a, a domino effect, if you'll allow me, Taylor. The, the first thing, sloppy, right? Let's, let's start with sloppy. When the U.S. is too sloppy on the ball, and they were in this game in both halves, not just the first half, but the second half as well. When they're sloppy on the ball and they lose the ball in spots where they're not ready to lose the ball. When you do that, you then kill your ability to counterpress, right? And I, Taylor, I really struggled to think of a moment in this game where the U.S. counterpressed effectively. No. Tyler Adams cleaned some things up in the second half, but that was like way after the initial mm-hmm. counterpress. Legette in the second half lost the ball in the first five minutes. Wea and Acosta couldn't connect in the second half in that same time period. The U.S. lost the ball and they weren't ready to lose it and then they got countered on by Panama. So that caused a big problem. Not counterpressing then limits your chances to get on the ball in better spots against maybe a disorganized opposition. That didn't exist. So the sloppy caused a problem and caused a bit of a tactical domino effect. The slow possession play did the exact same thing, right? In that 35th minute sequence that you're talking about, Taylor, Kellen Acosta takes forever. Walker Zimmerman takes a really long time on the ball. Legette plays a backwards pass. McKenzie takes a ton of touches. Bello plays a backwards pass. McKenzie plays it back to Turner. The center backs never split wide. And this whole thing is just moving at a snail's pace, right? And when that happens, Panama is not having any problems. They're just Mm -hmm. sitting back. They're opening a bag of chips. They're eating it. And they're waiting for you to play the ball long because they know that you can't play through them. And the U.S. didn't really play through them. So then you play direct. And Taylor, the U.S. weren't winning the second balls. And so you play direct. If you want to play direct, that's fine, right? The Red Bulls and the Red Bull system has made their money off of doing that. And it's, it's a little different now in some ways. But historically, that's been true. Direct soccer is fine. But if you're going to do that, you have to win the second balls or at least a large chunk of them. The U.S. did not do that in this game. They went direct, and and this was really evident later on in the game, but it happened all throughout this match. They would go direct. They would not win the ball, and Panama Panama would get the ball back. They would cause danger through Gondola on that left side or through whoever. They had some really nice plays and and passing sequences. But because the U.S. were sloppy, they lost the ball. They couldn't counterpress. Because the U.S. was slow, they played direct. They couldn't win the second ball. They lacked that intensity. And they just really did give Panama way too many chances to attack. And eventually, one of those attacks is going to turn into a goal. And that's exactly what happened in this game. And and I would say there's a difference to me between, like, going direct and at a certain point, it becomes like, it just looks like you're just trying to hopeless clear. Yep. Like, yep. And, and that was the, the, another big one for me was just how the United States was 
sort of consistently caught in multiple different mindsets. And to me, there was never really a foundation for we're playing this sequence, this pattern, this is what we're trying to do. And if you don't have a foundation, again, I feel like you have quicksand. And if you want to go direct, you can do that. But everybody has to get forward. You have to have numbers around that long ball so that if Zardes knocks it down, somebody is there to receive it. But if he doesn't, but he fights for it and the center back heads it straight up in the air or 10 yards behind him, someone else has to be running in to make a play. And if everybody kind of is slowly jogging forward after that clearance or the ball is overhit and everybody continues to jog forward, you're not, again, you're not causing Panama any sort of difficulty. You're playing right into their hands. And I think the thing that was so frustrating for me, at least, was to watch Panama then sort of execute long ball pretty correctly. Because as that first half goes on, I think the United States started to try to sit off a little bit more to make sure that they had numbers where they needed to, because for those opening 15 minutes, Panama could have easily been up 1-0 in the first 15. They could have been up 2-0 by the, by the end of the first half. And I think the United States sat a little bit deeper to try to absorb that, get a little bit of solid footing, and then figure out where to go from there. But then what I saw was Panama would basically have their two center backs keep the ball, pass it around, and eventually the United States would start to step up a couple yards. They'd push up maybe five yards across the board. So the midfield steps up, the attack steps up, the defense kind of stays where it is, and so did the Panamanian players. And so if you can imagine that, if you had, let's just say, like sometimes the U.S. was in a 4-4-2. I'm just making it two banks of four to make it easy to explain. If that midfield four step up five or ten yards, let's say ten yards, but the Panamanian players stay right where they are. You have created a gap. And then Panama would, without much pressure on them, because again, that front line wasn't really stepping aggressively, they would launch that ball towards the U.S. center backs. And even if they didn't win it, when the ball would spill loose ahead of that U.S. back line, now the midfield has been bypassed. Now they're out of position. Now they're not goal side, but the Panamanian players were. And it made the U.S. start to sit even deeper and keep numbers further back. And... The the difference in how the two teams played long ball and how successfully they played them if you're Panama and how unsuccessfully if you're the United States really stood out to me on that second viewing. Yeah, man, it, it, it was it was hard to watch. A lot of this game was hard to watch. I think I texted yeah. you that at one point, Taylor. Yeah, the one the, the one other thing I guess that's coming to mind right now is I spent some time earlier today watching the Behind the Crest video that U.S. Soccer posts on their YouTube channel. Taylor, I don't know. Have you seen any of these in no. the past? They're like little five, six, seven-minute videos that give some behind-the-scenes looks at these camps and at these games. And so they just published the ones surrounding the Jamaica game th- this morning as we're recording on Sunday. And I watched it this afternoon, almost right before this game. And one thing that caught my eye and caught my ear was Greg Baralter talking to this team. They were in the film room. They were in, I don't know, some sort of space in Austin's training facilities. And Baralter was talking about how a point of emphasis for this camp was to get the players really focused in, focused in and, and focusing on playing their style of play. I, I, it was something to that effect. I wish I had it written down. I didn't think I'd be talking about it on this show, but here I am. So that, that was the general message of that particular section of this video. And, and we see some of that against Jamaica, right? But not a lot of it. And we talked about that in certain respects in the last game. And then in this game, Taylor, I, I don't think you and I could describe an effective style of play that the U.S. used in this game. If, if you'd never seen the U.S. play soccer before, never heard Greg Baralter talk about how he wants the team to play, and you watch this game, we would have no idea. You would have no idea what that style of play the players were supposed to be buying into was and focusing in on was, right? And that's a problem. 
That's a big yeah. problem. And it's been a problem, right? This is not the first time that we've seen this. And this is why I tried to stay measured after that Jamaica game is because Jamaica is just really bad. They are really bad. And, and I think they're the worst team I've seen in the Ocho so far. Um, and so you come into this game and things are so scattered and scrambled. And I'm not going to blame Kellen Acosta. Again, sorry, Kellen Acosta. You're really catching a lot of heat today. I'm not going to blame Kellen Acosta, uh, Greg Berhalter for Kellen Acosta not controlling a back pass. I'm not. But I, I do think it's fair to say you know, how is this team being trained? How are they being set up to yeah. execute a style when we look back and we can't find what the style was supposed to be in the first place? That's that's a big problem. And it's been a problem too much. And it, I mean, it's a it's a real issue, Taylor. I mean, my guess would be that if you set if you had the opportunity to sit down with Berhalter before kickoff, he could give you a very not that he would, but he could give you a very <laughs> clear idea of what we're going to try to do. Of course, Here's what we're trying to play yeah. Here's our philosophy. And I think everybody has a philosophy. Everybody has a game plan. Everybody has a style of play. But to paraphrase Mike Tyson, you have that until you get punched in the face. And yep. Panama were aggressive from the start. They made the United States uncomfortable. They conquered when they needed to. They time wasted when they needed to, especially in the second half. But they were aggressive. They they did press. They would send runners at Matt Turner. And it wasn't even at times this coordinated press. It was just a, I'm going to run at you and see what you do. And if the United States had prepared for that and the game plan stood up to that, Somebody just checks into space, the ball goes to that player, there's a wall pass, and now that play, the player who stepped becomes a liability because they've run 20 or 30 yards out of position, they've been bypassed, and now someone else has to cover, and you have positive dominoes. Joe, to your earlier point, this was just a lot of negative dominoes, and instead, that one single runner oftentimes made people panic and made people just hoof it long and hope something would happen or made people dawdle on the ball and take their time and not back themselves to make that risky pass. And then the United States just kind of kept getting hit and kept not being able to respond. Uh, we've we've kind of gone long mostly on the first half. We haven't even talked about the goal. So let's take one more break, Joe. Then let's talk a bit about the second half, a bit about the substitutions, a bit about whatever else we want to talk about. Because, uh, again, not the most fun game to discuss, not the most fun <laughs> game to rewatch. But I would like to come away with some kind of clear ideas on what went wrong and where we go from here. We'll see if we can do that in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe, we're back. Uh, we're going to stick with the second half. Let's start with the substitutions. So we get two at halftime. It's Brendan Aronson on. It's Tyler Adams on. But it's Paul Ariola off. It's Eunice Musa off. And I think the grumbling of discontent got a little bit louder when it was Eunice Musa coming off because we're not trying to pick on him. I think you've already said that once. I will say it so we can make it one for or two for two. But <laughs> Kellen Acosta was not having a good game, was not succeeding in that position. Yunus Musa, I think, was doing things that justified continuing to stay on the pitch. And I think Tyler Adams behind Legette and Musa gives us a better attacking look, if nothing else. Musa has like the little kind of like he dips his shoulder, he he fates one way, he cuts the other, and he opens up Panama and they attack. And that's when we get the Legette cross that Paul Ariola almost gets on the end of. And I saw a couple other just instances where Yunus Musa was trying stuff and backed himself to make something happen, or at the very least came under pressure and rather than panicking, tried to do something with it tried to combine tried to go on a run I would have liked to see him stay on the pitch I'm sure there's a managing minutes explanation for this but to me that goes back to arrogance that you can afford to manage minutes when you are up four nil when you are drawing nil nil and then later on when you're down one nil that's when you can't afford to be like well we had a plan for how we wanted him to play and how many minutes and so we needed to get the rotation in there like rotation is a luxury not a given and tonight it felt like it was maybe used in a way that didn't set us up to succeed yeah I think I'm going to generally withhold judgment on the whole rotation thing. I mean, maybe sure. I haven't decided really where I stand. I reserve the mm-hmm. right to change my mind at any point in time. Uh, but until after the Costa Rica game, right? Because I think mm-hmm. if that goes well, then maybe Baralter doesn't look so bad and the U.S. gets those three points at, in, in Columbus at home. Then maybe these decisions look fine. If not, then we're probably having a different conversation. One thing, Taylor, that really disappointed me, though, after seeing the subs is there was this burst of energy, I think, right after the second half kickoff. And that burst of energy's name was Tyler Adams, right? He came in, he won the ball, he played a nice ball out wide. I think to Tim Way, it might have been to Shaq Moore, it doesn't matter. But there's some pace here, there's some life, there's some some ball winning in midfield, there's something happening. And I really enjoyed seeing that. There was one other really nice moment inside the first seven minutes of the first half. It's it's the one moment I could find where the U.S. really systematically play out from the back. And they play out from goal and they break through Panama. And it's not beautiful, but they get there and they get into the attacking half. And then there was just no more of that. Instead, what I noticed mostly in the beginning stages of these first of, of the, the first few minutes of the second half was turnovers, number one, and then just really hopeful crosses, number two. It was an early cross in from Tyler Adams. It was multiple crosses in from Shaq Moore. Tim Weah had a cross. There's other moments as well. It was like it was like they weren't even really trying to get themselves in positions to create chances in a non-hopeful way. I don't understand fully what led to all of those crosses. Those surely could not have been instructed at halftime. I don't mm. really know what's going on, but that's another moment of what are we watching on the field and where did it come from? And the more of those moments there are, the more questions we have to ask about you know, how this team was being prepared to yeah. play in games. But it, w- it was frustrating to watch, even with those subs, who I thought Aronson and Adams were maybe the, the perfect two players to breathe life into this team. And they did in spurts, but just not consistently enough. 
And, and and Joe, like, so let, let's stick with the crossing for a moment, because, again, it, it can be a thing where if you get your tactics wrong, if you feel like, oh, we, we thought we'd be able to pass through the middle using quick combinations and like position switching, we'd be able to find opportunities. We haven't, but they're not defending the backside well. They're only putting one person back there. So now we're going to put our best crosser out wide. They're going to target that back post. We're going to make them sort of adjust what they're doing, and then either we'll get something out of it, or if we don't, they're going to adjust. We can see what opens up from that. But if sometimes that crosses to the back post, sometimes it doesn't clear the first defender, sometimes it's hit out for a goal kick, and sometimes it's exactly where it needs to be. If you're an attacker trying to make a run or trying to figure out where you need to be, you can, it's just random. You're just guessing, basically. And so much of what the US was doing in so many different areas of the pitch was different from one sequence to the next that if you're trying to make a run, I, honestly, I think Giassi's artist did about as good of a job as he could because sometimes he was dropping in 40 yards, but sometimes he's trying to make like long, like, like get on the end of a long ball, but sometimes he's trying to like link up when the U.S. is, is passing. But I don't think there was any sort of regularity to that. So I think in the end, he had a pretty thankless job. And I think the midfield wasn't nearly connected enough to help him look more plugged in than he did. So I don't think he had as bad of a game as other people. I wouldn't say he had a good game, but I think Jossie's artist is an easy one to scapegoat when then there are, when there are other people, including the manager who probably deserve more blame than that. I don't have a lot of issues with how sure. Jossie's artist played this game in the same with, with some other members of the front line, right? There are, there are sequences where you can say, ah, maybe, maybe this run would have been better than that run. And those are valid critiques, but when so much of the play is breaking down before it even gets to you in that front line, it's hard to have too many complaints here, Taylor. Yeah. Again, like Dios was playing long and they weren't they weren't winning the ball in midfield at that point. It was hopeless. It was ho- it was overly hopeful and then it quickly became hopeless. And part of that leads to the goal in the 54th minute for for Panama, right? It comes after Panama win the ball in midfield. The U.S. just really struggled to win those battles in that space. Panama win the ball in midfield, and then they start to possess. They shift possession from left to right. It's a really nice switch of play. Brendan Aronson can't really interfere in that moment as the ball comes over to his side. Tyler Adams eventually has to slide over and put the ball out for a corner. And then the U.S. in that zonal marking shape largely, at least largely zonal marking, that they'd used throughout the game and in the past as well. Panama stacked three players inside of the the line of zonal markers inside the six. They crowd Matt Turner just like they did earlier on in this game. Yep. And it's a good ball in. Anibal Godoy barely gets ahead on it. And then Jossie Zardes finishes it off just for the wrong squad here. I mean, it, you can trace this back to troubles winning the ball in the field and a lack of real aggression and intensity on a set-piece defending situation. It's, it's a really unfortunate goal to concede and a goal that could have been avoided, Taylor. Exactly. And and also, I think really, I hadn't really realized this till you said that, Joe, like really illustrates what I'm talking about, that contrast it with Kellen Acosta's set piece delivery. The first corner he takes, he puts it on Zimmerman's head. It's the one that Zimmerman, maybe it's going over anyway, but gets kind of pushed over. It's another corner from there. That one is slightly overhit, but it still gets to Zimmerman. The next one is way overhit. It barely stays in bounds. And from there, I think his next two uh, set pieces he has, uh, Acosta doesn't clear the first defender. And there's there doesn't seem to be a ton of rhyme or reason i guess maybe he's just trying to find zimmerman i don't know how big of a plan that is but look at panama for a moment and joe you're absolutely right i saw that too that they i don't know if it was because of how the united states try to defend but you don't really have anybody from the u.s inside the six yard box when they're defending everybody seems to step out and leave that to matt turner which is theoretically okay but if panama have three people surrounding matt turner 
the the idea i think is that if they have only have one in front of him if turner moves that player isn't allowed to move you can't screen the goalkeeper but if you have three people around him it makes it really hard for him to be able to move or find any sort of space and that basically panama did that in the first half a couple times and then they did it in the second and they scored off of it to me shows they had a game plan that they were trying to execute they knew what they were trying to do on set pieces and they did it they had the one even in the beginning of the game when they hit that corner it's like a low driven pass towards the near post because again there's just that corridor that has opened up because the u.s defend the way they do and i think you could, I mean, uh, unless someone else is designing the way the U.S. defends set pieces, that's another one where I think Burhalter maybe is being a little bit too clever and needs somebody to just defend that near post and be there to head it clear and then make sure that Turner has the support he needs to be able to command that six-yard box. I, I think there's a little bit of revision that's necessary, maybe a lot bit of revision, Joe. I think I think you're right. I'm almost positive that someone else is designing those set piece defense mm-hmm. setups. Um, I don't yeah, know I'm, that I'm that's thinking, Burhalter's I'm, job. What I mean is more so like I doubt it's Matt Turner being like, here's right. what we're going to do, guys. Like it's right. still the coaching staff and yes. Berhalter is the head of the staff. Agreed. Yep. I mean, I, I don't really have anything else to add on that. Another in That's a fair. long list of, of <laughs> things that went wrong in this game. Yeah. yeah. All right. Two two other little things. Well, one little thing, one larger thing. Um, a, a thing that I noticed time and time again, and maybe this was just an individual being an individual. I don't think so. I think it was part of a larger plan, but it literally never worked. Is that when Panama would have the ball and when they were building out, they would inevitably, the ball would go to uh, Fidel Escobar, the right center back. And that would mean, uh, 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 but who's on the right side the right back? Was it Murillo? Oh yeah, Murillo. Mm Mm-hmm. Mario. I always make him Muriel and it's Mario. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Uh, Mario, uh, would, would step up, up the pitch and basically Tim Wea is caught between the two. But Tim Wea seemed to be tasked with go charge down Fidel Escobar as hard as you can. Almost every single time Escobar gets the ball when they're building Panama, Tim, Tim Wea goes on a run. And almost every single time he is completely bypassed. Sometimes Escobar would just take a step to, like, uh, uh, take a touch to his right and bend it around Wea along the touchline into the feet of, uh, Muriel. Uh, sometimes I did it again, didn't I? Muriel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, it's one of those things. I've remembered it the wrong way now. Uh, but then other times Escobar would take a step inside with the ball and then play the ball out wide to Murillo. Other times he would carry it to the other side of the field, then like do a quick little pass to Eric Davis, the left back. And then Davis would hit that big switch to the other side, which was now completely open. And they kept doing this. No one would follow Tim Weah. Nobody else would step. There was no aggressive step behind him. It seemed to be, that's where that kind of 4-4-2 idea came to me, was that it seemed to be Tim Weah had license to step forward and be aggressive in that press, but nobody followed suit. And so basically what I thought the U.S. was going to try to do to Panama, Panama did to the U.S. And once again, it kind of worked. And that, basically has me in a bit of a conundrum, Joe, or a bit of a confused state, because, again, to go back to the Jamaica game, you wanted to withhold judgment just because we didn't see Jamaica high press, we didn't see them bunker, we saw them kind of in a mid-block, sometimes they did like sit a little bit deeper, sometimes they did step a little bit higher, but there wasn't one style of play overall. And so where I am now is basically, if the U.S. is playing a team that's in a mid-block and not applying a ton of pressure, they can get a win. But if they're playing against a bunkered team, we still don't know if they can create chances and get a win. And now if they're playing against a team that is high pressing and causing them problems, we also don't know if they can get a win. So in some ways, I know more than I did. It's just 
I know more in ways that don't make me happy because it's not, <laughs> hey, we found a solution. We know how to deal with this. We know how to problem solve that or game plan for this. Instead, I feel like we have a longer list of things that we need to learn how to deal with than we did before this game. This gives me no joy to say, and I, I want to make that very clear. But paraphrasing what you said, Taylor, you just basically said if if the U.S. is playing a team with a poorly executed defensive game plan, they can win. And if they're playing against a team yeah. that has a, a defined style of play, then it is in the, yep. are pretty well coached. The U.S. has not shown a consistent ability to win those games. And that that concerns me. And we're also not – I'm also not trying to erase – the summer tournament wins, right? Those yeah. two finals. I'm not trying to erase those, but we've talked about this before. The warning signs were there. Those were awesome results. But I mean, sometimes the better team doesn't always win in soccer. And I'm not saying the U.S. was played off the field in those games necessarily. They were better at some things in Mexico and Mexico, Mexico was better at some things than the U.S. was. But man, I mean, we, we are not in a place right now where, where it feels like there's a lot of confidence behind this U.S. team. And, and to be honest, I think confidence would be somewhat misplaced in this group right now. So, Joe, let's I said this in the beginning. Let's try to come up with some like concrete things that we think went wrong with this game. If you're giving a sort of concise list, what are some of the things, the bullet points you've okay. got written down? Yeah, yeah. So too sloppy on the ball, too slow on the ball. And we kind of talked about those two things and, and those things directly lead into an ability to counterpress. If you're not ready to lose the ball, you're not ready to recover the ball. So if you're too sloppy, you're not really going to be able to counterpress. If you're too slow, you end up playing some hopeful long balls and those didn't work. So those, those are two slash four issues there. Then when you're too direct and not winning second balls, that's a real problem. So a lack of, of real fight in, in, I don't know, ball winning in midfield, I guess, is the best way to put that. Um, I think that was really lacking too cross heavy, I would say, in the second half. And the one thing we hadn't talked about that I guess I'll toss in here is I tweeted something out about this. But after Panama went up in the second half, the U.S. kind of lost their pressing cohesiveness. They were just running yeah. towards the ball. I tweeted out a, a, a gif of DeAndre Yedlin just putting in this reckless slide tackle and he just gets played right by and gives up a counterattack for Panama during a, a pressing moment for the U.S. So Overly aggressive on an individual level with pressing, too direct in a, in a hopeful kind of way, sloppy, spacing wasn't very good in possession, too slow on the ball and not counter-pressing. Those are like, I guess, five or six things that are on my list, Taylor. All right. A couple other ones for me would just be the like the inability to calm down, basically. The inability to reset. Uh, like when a dog gets riled up, when a dog has a moment of like tension, you can see it a couple minutes later it'll like shake and that's the dog's way of resetting. And we had nobody on this team who helped the U S reset. It just felt like the nerves kept building. And I think we missed veteran presences and, and the kind of leader figures who can help the United States find a way through or can just help everybody relax. Or if the situation requires get in people's faces and, and like, if that's the reset they need, maybe you need to have someone to be like, Hey, knock it off, just play this pass. And then they do that. And then they build that confidence back up. But if you don't have anybody doing that, it just didn't feel like anybody was sort of like at the helm taking charge. And even when Tyler Adams comes on, it seemed like he was trying to do so many different things to solve problems that he wasn't able to just play his game in a way that probably helps other people play theirs. So I think the kind of almost lack of like fighting identity, I think w was a big thing, even if that sounds a little bit vague. I also think the substitutions and just some of the tactics for this game to me were either arrogance at thinking that we can rotate and we'll be able to get a result here even if it's a draw oh well it's a draw then we'll go back home and get the win and it's seven points from three games and that's great 
But I think like, the expectation of that I had, at least, of Christian Roldan coming on and just being able to – he's the cohesive guy. He's the glue guy. He knows what Berhalter wants. He'll come on and do some things that other people weren't doing. And to see him, the adding sugar to salt like analogy again, basically be thrown in there and it's just immediately he's salt. Like it just – it didn't really have any impact. And so those changes – not being able to change things in a in a proactive way, in a productive way, and then simultaneously, I would say Acosta and Legette staying on for the entirety of the game. Part of that is because you've used all your substitutions, and I guess that's good. We saw Berhalter make proactive changes early, but I don't think, or not proactive, but I guess he made changes, but I don't think that they had the desired effect, certainly. So I, I think the some of the in-game decision-making still did not help the United States on this day. If anybody's writing that list down, I would not recommend double spacing the things that Taylor and I just came up with because it's going to be a really long list if you do. Just pretend that it's not as long and and just single space it and it won't look so bad. (laughs) All right. So if we're trying to not end this one on on the saddest note ever, um, what would you like to see in that final game? Aside from a win, like if you are describing your ideal game not even necessarily in a scoreline but some of the people you want to see and how you want the united states to play what you want to see them do when they're on the ball when they're off the ball what does that game look like to you i want to see a team with a cohesive plan of how to tackle a game right and i think Mm -hmm. i think that can happen it's not impossible right a lot of this stuff doesn't have to be insanely complicated i think it makes sense to roll out the same shape taylor i think it makes sense to try and use the ball against a team like costa rica that just doesn't have as much talent as you do right so play play your best players play that lineup that we i think you me and tom all sort of ended up at before this whole window started right matt turner in goal chris richards and and even though we haven't seen him yet chris richards and miles robinson together as the two center backs destin robinson anthony robinson as the fullbacks adams at the six he should be ready to go weston mckinney and Eunice musa as those eights pepe as the nine and aronson and Wea on the wings that lineup with some semblance of an idea of how to play should be more than enough to beat Costa Rica at home in Columbus on a good field. So those are those are really the things I want to see. And I don't feel like any of those things are, are really out of reach for the U.S. men's national team. They just kind of seem out of reach right now after this result. But playing the best players you can for this game, there's literally no reason not to play those best players, see if the rotation gambit worked out, and, and at that point just roll with what you put out on the field. Yeah, and, and let's. I'm going to take Paul Ariola as an example for a moment. That's a player that I think we were both more positive about than we expected to be, and certainly it seems than uh, more positive than Twitter was. Twitter did not love that people were praising Paul Ariola, and uh, there were some people then saying like, "See, I told you so." Tonight, when he did not have a good game, and I think what I would say is that we saw the strengths and limitations of his game. That against a team that lets him make those runs, those kind of darting runs in behind, but has people around him who can find him on the ball, or that he makes those runs and that opens up space for other people Paul Ariola is a very like a hard-working player who has a decent enough touch but I wouldn't say a great first touch and we saw that this evening and he can do some things really well and other things not as well and tonight we saw what he doesn't do as well and so if we then see him start the next game and the U.S. is doing similar things to me we're not learning we're just repeating the same mistakes and so to what you're saying I don't think Tim Weah had a great game but I think we saw 
little things from him that I that stood out to me in both mostly negative but some positive ways and then if we see him again in the next game to see how the positives are built upon and the negatives are played down or sort of removed that that's what I would like to see is natural evolution that makes sense as opposed to I don't want to see us in a back three next game I don't want to see Tyler Adams on the right I don't want to see uh, like a four two three one with Kellen Acosta and I don't know uh, Gianluca Busio is our two. Like, I don't really want to see a ton of experimentation. I want to see the United States get back to here's the formation that makes a lot of sense. Here's the style of play. And then if Costa Rica go to a back three or change it up or overload one part of the pitch, I want to see the U.S. adapt to that from a solid foundation. And that would be the key to me that like if we're playing our style, the way we want to play, the way we've been coached, the way we're set up and then Costa Rica throws a wrench that we're able to remove that wrench and continue playing the way we want to. That's what you have to be able to do to make the World Cup and then to succeed at the World Cup if we want to get out of the group, ideally if we get there in the first place. So I think I want to see the United States, yeah, basically learn from these two games and build upon what worked and get rid of what didn't and play a game where everything works. That would be a nice way to end this round of qualifying. I agree, Taylor. It's a big game. Like this is a big result. Or it's going to hopefully be a big result for the U.S. men's national team. They they need points, and, and three points would be really big right now. Dropping and not getting any points away to Panama is is bad. It's not the end of the world from a results standpoint at this point in the qualifying cycle. But uh, anything less really than three points against Costa Rica, then there are real questions. And there already are questions, right, that need to be asked. But at that point, you're in a, a pretty tough spot, I think. And, and I think... Like, I I will speak from a a personal perspective here, Joe. I don't want to lump you into this one, but I will say, like, I do think Greg Berhalter is a good coach. I think he can get the best out of this team, and (sighs) if they can simplify things, I think that they can put it together and put a run together. But the longer they don't, the less I start to feel that way. And I am not at the point where I'm saying Burhalter out. I know there are many people who are already of that position. I know there are people who've been in that position since he was first hired. Uh, and I do think that's maybe part of why I'm hesitant to go that way. But I just think to your point, Joe, like if, if they lose that game or they only get one point and we're coming out of this with four points and we still put it this way, man, if we come out of this one with like uneven results, we still don't know what the best shape is, what the best approach is, what we're really trying to do from game to game. That's Jurgen Klinsmann to me again. And it's, and it is that like notice, like I don't really have any personal beef with Jurgen Klinsmann. I've never met him, but That was one of my least favorite U.S. managers ever because it just felt like the players were trying to figure stuff out. It was up to the players to kind of decide tactics. He would spring stuff on them 15 minutes before the game started and they would have to learn what to do. And that's where we would always see Bradley and Jones sort of having these conversations at midfield or coming over and saying, like, this is not working. We've got to change it. And the more we kind of have these erratic performances where sometimes we're good and sometimes we're not, and sometimes we're doing this, but sometimes we're not. And, oh, he went long this time. Oh, he went long again. Oh, wait, now we're trying to possess. Like, I just, the more it's all over the place, the more erratic it feels, the more we're building towards something via organic growth and development, the better I feel. Organic is always better, Joe. Put it, it that way. Or- organic is always better, hmm. folks. I Man, I am I'm struggling, Taylor, to, to get on board with the Baralter as a good coach statement. Um We've seen 90 good minutes of soccer. I would say the second half of the Honduras game and the second half of the Jamaica game in this yeah. qualifying window, that's 20%, I, I think, if I did my math right. 90 minutes out of 450 minutes of World Cup qualifying soccer. That has actually been like 
solid and, and confidence building, that's that's a struggle, man. Combined with what we've seen in Nations League and at times in the Gold Cup, I just we've talked about how those trophies shouldn't just be thrown out necessarily, but a lot of the the games to get there and even the finals themselves weren't pretty, right? And weren't really building towards this brand of soccer we've seen from Berhalter. So I don't know. I'm not really interested, and I yeah. don't think you are either in the whole Berhalter out discussion. No. I don't think that's especially he's not productive. Be fired, so. he's, not, he's not going to be fired right <laughs> yeah, now, certainly. He's not reason. really close to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think you can still say that discussion maybe isn't fruitful. And, yeah. and, and for me, I can say that at least. I don't want to speak for you. But that conversation is not fruitful while also saying, man, I don't know that Berhalter's done a very good job with the national team. I mean, we. I think we ended the last show with me drawing the comparison to current Manchester United, how they will beat certain teams who are maybe a little bit more open or a little bit more defensively uh, suspect. They will win those games 5-1 or 4-0, and it's like, oh, this is it. They figured it out. They're going to be the best team. And then they go up against a team that has some semblance of a defensive game plan, and they struggle. And I, heading out of that game, like the conversation was – there are some similarities there. I do not want this to kind of continue those similarities that next game. And here we are. It feels like the exact same thing where you get one performance that's good and then the next performance not as good and not a ton of consistency between it, not a ton of parallels, not a lot of things learned. And it just feels random. And I do not love how random this team tends to feel. May Ricardo's feet and head be blessed, <laughs> and may the Peppy train leave the station. I don't know what else to say, Taylor Rockwell. Yeah, I mean, because I like you could make the, the you could make the excuses of there's no Reina, there's no Pulisic, it's away in Concacaf, it's young player. I mean, we've made all those excuses before, and I right. think they were they have been valid at various points. If it's your first game of World Cup qualifying, and you've won the two tournaments you've won, you can have that swagger you can have that arrogance as soon as you get punched and knocked down or knocked out you can't continue to swagger you've got to be like i've been punched i've been knocked down i got to make sure that doesn't happen again and so i think those excuses don't work for me anymore you can use them for a little bit of time they make sense they are logical explanations for what's gone wrong at a certain point they move from logical explanations to just straight up excuses and i think we are Getting closer and closer, and it's just it's it's a frustrating thing because it's so much it's just more fun to root for a team that's playing good soccer, even if they're losing, but they're playing a way that makes sense, that makes us feel like we know what's happening here. We've seen Adams do this. Oh, tonight they put two people on him and he couldn't do that, or they put one person on him the whole game, and so the U.S. had to find another way to attack. Like if it's that, I can live with it. But if it's I don't really know, Joe. What do you think they were trying to do? I don't really know. I mean, I think I saw that. Like, that—that that is just more uncertainty than I would like to see at this point. Too many I thinks, not enough I knows. There we and go. It would be good to have more knows about good things. I guess we have knows about bad things. We kind of talked about yeah. that earlier. But we need more knows about good things, and I'm afraid we're not going to get any until Wednesday. Yeah. Well, one more thing that I think is that we might be beating a dead horse at this point because we've talked about this game a lot. We've talked about the goal somewhat. We've talked about what went wrong, what went right for Panama. And congratulations to Panama, their first ever win against the United States in World Cup qualifying. That's pretty huge. Hopefully that does not come back to bite the United States, but we shall see one more game uh, in this round of qualifying on Wednesday evening against Costa Rica. Joe and I will be back to review that one Thursday morning. We're not going to stay up late. We're going to get to it in the morning. We're going to take 
take our time, and Joe, hopefully we're going to be happier than we are right now when next we speak about the U.S. men's national team. I hope so, man. I'm still, I mean, I, I still love having these conversations with you, yeah, but you're so right. It, it is, it's always better after I a mean, different it, result. I mean, it is always my favorite thing that to be able, there's some comfort in knowing that we're going to rewatch it and then spend over an hour talking about it, <laughs> because if I'm just left to my own devices, I'm just sitting here like, that was bad, that was terrible, and I get those texts from my friends of like, oh, that sucked, that was terrible, that was awful. What's wrong with this team? What's wrong with Burhalter? And it's... I don't love sitting in that space, and that's why I don't always love these types of shows, because I don't want to make people sit in that negativity either, but sometimes you have to do that to figure out what's not working, what's gone wrong, and then hopefully learn from it. So hopefully we've been able to do that. Now we'll see if we end up being more positive uh, on Wednesday night slash Thursday morning. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you once again for talking all these things out with me this evening. You got it, Taylor. Hopefully it was therapy for the listeners, yeah, just buddy. like it was therapy for us. It sure was, at least for me. Hopefully for the listeners. Listeners, thank you all <laughs> all very much for listening and sitting in on this therapy session we'll talk to you all again very soon and paul and sam will talk to you tomorrow monday uh that would be monday the 11th they uh having covered this game in person will be reviewing it as well so lots of u.s men's national team content this week but for now thanks so much for listening we'll talk to you very soon